Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hi, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We're your hosts, Kim and Mark, and we'll be talking about a bunch of wine subjects today. How are you today, Mark? Good, Kim. Excited always to talk wine. Indeed, me too. So what's first, Kim? So first, for folks who don't know, there are a number of wine publications that are published regularly, either every week or every other week. And every year, a lot of them do come out with a top 100 list or a top 25 list, some sort of end of the calendar year wrap up of what they consider to be the best wines available in the previous year. So we wanted to talk a little bit about those lists today and how consumers can use them intelligently. Yes, yeah, so top 100 wines in the world according to Wine Spectator magazine and Wine Enthusiast magazines. And and first Kim, do you still get any wine publications like paper versions of magazines? I don't, but I do still read them from time to time. I think do you well, I personally think most people at myself included, I get the publication, but I'm using the online reading more. So you, do you still get the paper copy in the I mail? I still get the paper mm-hmm. copy of Wine Enthusiast and Wine Spectator, but I find myself just going online to read it. Yeah, I, that's pretty true too, especially if you are like looking for a certain topic and it's so much easier to Google whatever you're interested in and then that article from Spectator or Enthusiast pops up and you're like, hey, here it is. And years ago, when they released the top 100 wines in the world, I was very very excited. And I I kind of use it as advertising. We have 10 or 20 out of the top 100. And I, I've kind of gone away from that. My mm-hmm. excitement's kind of gone down. So what do you think about the list? Why aren't you as excited about those lists anymore? I, probably because I think maybe I'm the only one that kind of follows it. I don't oh, okay. know. You think it's more of a collector that's looking at it than a general wine drinker? I think that there's some interest in there but you're probably you're probably right or or maybe it's just that you know are you bored with the lists or you just <laughs> you just don't feel that they're important anymore it's exciting to know that you know the list is out how many did i taste this year that i put on my shelf uh-huh. type of thing and i'm sure it's the same for you it's like how many do i recognize right it's like oh i know many... that one. Oh, i know that one. Oh, yeah i agree with that <laughs> that's the fun part the, i guess the bad part about it is it's commercialized where people take advantage of those lists it's tough to get them they play games once it's released you have to get other things to get this so mm-hmm. it's tough as a retailer but i don't see many people coming in maybe when you're doing events do people ask you hey kim i'm looking for number 10 on the top one do you, have you seen it that type of thing not so much in my independent wine consulting i don't get that question all that often when i was working retail we definitely would have that we would have people come in with the physical list that they had either printed off the internet or they bring you know they would bring in their their copy of wine spectator and they would have checked off which ones they were looking for and then if we had them we had them great but if not people did tend to leave pretty disappointed because there are some problems for the consumer that i have found that come about because of these lists 
And the distributors will usually, right when they're released, they'll tell you what they have and you know what numbers are on the list for, mm-hmm. so for you to get them. And this year, we were lucky that the top one in each publication was by the same distributor. And we were also lucky because we tasted them both at an event. That's right. So that's what we wanted to talk about with the listeners today is what we thought of these lists and what we thought of the actual two top 100 wines in the world that we enjoyed. Right. So it, it was pretty cool to be able to taste of the top wines from each of the lists. And they were, interestingly, both Italian wines, which doesn't happen all the time, but usually there is a fair representation of better Italian wines on these lists. And it's interesting looking through both the Wine Spectator and the Wine Enthusiast lists that I feel that the Wine Spectator list tends to be a little bit more traditional, you know, going with those regions that have traditionally been known to produce quality wine. The same producers tend to pop up over and over and over again. And the Wine Enthusiast list, I I think they have a little bit more flexibility and variability. There's more variety. And I think that there are different flavor profiles in that list where if you aren't necessarily a fan of big, heavy reds, there are still some great wines that you can find on those lists. I liked how you said Italian, but you didn't smile about it. So, I mean, if it was two bubblies on the top, you'd be like all happy about it, right? Well, one of the things that I I think is a um, problem is too strong of a word, but they're reviewing the most recent recently released vintages of these things. And especially for the number one wine from Wine Spectator this year, which was uh, Sasakaya, that wine is a baby. It's going to taste so much better in a few years. So for people who do get the opportunity to have these wines opened for them when they're still available, I don't think that they necessarily get the best impression of the wines because they are still so young and they're not tasting as good as they could. Yeah, I, I agree with that. As a matter of fact, the Sasakaya and in their note, they said, do not drink it until 2023 to 2042. Right. So it's going to taste so. a whole lot better after it's been in bottle for a couple of years. So, you know, I think it's hard for consumers because most people don't hold on to wines for a long time. Most people buy a bottle, bring it home and drink it. If you're lucky enough to have a space where you can store some wine and that you have the income that you can splurge a little bit on some of these better bottles, then then yeah, it's worth it to hold on to them for a few years because you will be rewarded. But I don't think it helps to have these wines opened right away as soon as they're on these lists because you're just not getting the full effect. So let's first talk about Wine Spectator. And right on top of their article, they say these top 100s are based on the last 12 months of what they say they base on quality, value, availability, and excitement Hmm. since 1988. And then the number one, as you said, Kim, was Sasakaya, the 2015 vintage. They rated it 97 points at a cost of $245 a bottle. And I'll tell you what they said, Kim, for their tasting note, and then we can talk about what we thought. They said it was concentrated black fruits, mineral spice, great integration of oak, and it's a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and 17,200 cases made. And once again, don't touch it until 2023. So what did you think? I thought it was very nicely balanced. It was listed as having a relatively high alcohol. I think that the alcohol percentage on the label said 14%. And I didn't get that it tasted hot or anything at all. So I do agree that it was very nicely balanced. It didn't, you, you didn't get an overall 
overwhelming idea that there was a lot of oak on there. The fruit was very pretty. Like I said, it's an elegant style of wine, but I didn't get a whole lot of primary fruit, I think, because it is so young. Yeah, I totally agree. Very balanced, but not to me. They say concentrated. It was more integral. I agree with the integration. It was just very balanced, but you weren't getting really any of that yeah, I don't fruit know about concentrated. Yet. Like when I think of a concentrated red wine, I think of something that has lots and lots of fruit where I'm just, wow, like that. there's a lot of flavor going on in there. This, I didn't really get so that. More balance. More, so yeah. we'll agree on the balance. We'll agree what on about balance. the What about the price? The 245 is probably on a retail store. If you see this on a restaurant, it's probably, what, say 300 to 500 Probably, a yeah, maybe five to 600 a bottle because they know that people are looking for this wine because it is rated one of the top wines in the world. But whew, $200, $250 price tag. That's that's pretty steep. So if someone said, Kim, I'm trying to find this top 100 wine, would you say, yeah, it's worth $245? No. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And we were lucky enough to taste it. We were lucky enough to taste it with a group of people. And what did you sense was the feedback from the wine drinkers in the room? I think that we people had? were pretty much on the same page as we were. It's like, yeah, you know, this is nice. This is good. But I don't think there was anybody in that room that was like blown away by it. I we feel tried like we've to build had, it up too. And yeah, <laughs> I think we've had certain times where people will taste something and they'll be like, wow, this is amazing. The flavor's just, you know, for whatever reason, a wine makes a really big impression on people. I don't think that this did that. I agree. So let's talk about the Wine Enthusiast magazine. And when they talk about their top 100s, they say they reviewed more than 24,000 wines and they say it's the most exciting finds, excellent quality to price ratio, which a lot of times in the wine world, you see QPR, quality price ratio. I don't know if it means anything to anybody. Drinkability, availability, and with an average price of $36. I think it's really funny that both of them, both publications mention availability, which when I think about these lists is usually one of the first problems that I have with them because for a number of different reasons. One, because of the way that wine is distributed in America, each state is kind of like its own little country and has its own set of rules and its own system of distribution. So not every wine that is listed in a national publication will be available in every state. And then also what we were going, uh, well, we were going back to something else that we talked about, that sometimes the distributors either don't have these wines or once they hit a publication like this, then they're pretty high allocated. So I actually find availability to be to be pretty pretty difficult when it comes to some of these. Yeah, and I liked how early you said the wine enthusiast list is more flexible. I think it's to me it's more the everyday wine drinkers list versus the wine spectators, the more the collector or the, the right. high end wine consumer. But that makes sense because of what these publications are. And wine spectator appeals more to a high end drinker and to somebody who is a collector and who is looking for more of these specialty bottles, whereas wine enthusiast is a little bit more for the novice or intermediate wine drinker, somebody who is just starting to have an interest in wine and wants to learn more. So I think that makes sense given the philosophies of the two publications that wine enthusiasts would have a list that is a little more inclusive and that maybe has a lower price point and wines that aren't all like big and tannic and heavy reds, but have some other different kinds of flavor profiles going on. Yeah. And you can 
tell that by the advertisers in each magazine. So there's Rolex and Wine <laughs> right. Spectator and there's not Rolex and Wine Enthusiast. So the top number one wine, Kim, let's talk about that in the Wine Enthusiast that we had. Like you said, another Italian wine, and I'll let you pronounce the producer because I'm still working on my Italian. I say Chiarlo, Michael. Mi- Michele Chiarlo. Michele. I would say Ma- Michele. <laughs> but it was a Barbera from Piemonte from the Niza DOCG. So it's a very specific uh, location in Piedmont for Barbera, and the price point was $25 a bottle. I think this is a cool one for them to choose because, like you said, Nizza is a very new DOC for Barbera. So this sort of shows this progression in that wine laws can change. And when you have these up and coming regions that prove that they can make much better quality wine, then they are um, sort of rewarded for that. And it's interesting because Sasakaya falls into the exact same category where once upon a time, it wasn't a DOC or a DOCG wine from Italy. It was just a table wine because there was no box that it could fit in. But because of the quality of the wine, it it literally changed the rules. And this Barbera kind of did the same thing. So I find that to be very interesting. So that's a good point you brought up, Kim, because the number one in the wine enthusiast from Piemonte is a DOCG, which is the highest level of Italian wine law. But the Sassacaia is is an IGT, which is the lowest level, but a very high price point. So it's interesting contrast there. So Mm -hmm. what did you think of the taste of the Barbera? I thought it was good. It's a... $25 $25, Yes, absolutely $25 good. It was again, balanced, which is what I look for in a good wine. And I thought it was refreshing and, you know, probably would be better with food, frankly, than just tasting it all on its own. But that's because of the kind of wine that it is, you know, Italian wines in general. And I think actually Barbera specifically is one of those wines that is improved by having food with it. Yeah, not a, to me, it wasn't an overpowering, like usually I get a cherry profile fruit. It wasn't an overpowering fruit. There was some, mm-hmm. I want to say earthiness. It was that savoriness to it. Yeah, too. yeah and there exactly. was like, there was a really cool herbal quality that I found about it that I, I found to be very fascinating. And I kept wanting to, you know, sort of stick my nose back in the glass because I thought the aromas of it were really pretty. So we were looking also through the wine enthusiast list. And if you've listened to us in the past, Kim always has her one of her go-to wines called uh, Pine Ridge. And it was on the list at number 80. Mm-hmm. So I give you credit Thank for you. that. <laughs> but I, this brings us back to that idea of quality and price and value. That That's a bottle that's like, you know... 12 to 15 dollars and i love being able to find those wines in that 12 to 25 dollar price range that are really good values that give you a lot of bang for your buck and that are frankly delicious now and that you don't have to wait 10 years for and that's what i think that people can get more out of the wine enthusiast list than the wine spectator list You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like to follow more on our show, please go to iTunes and search The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we're going to talk about Portugal in an article that was in uh, 750.com. What's next for Portuguese wine? And Kim, I've been 
very excited lately about Portuguese wine. We've held an event about Portuguese wine and we've actually added it to our education schedule. That's right. So let's talk about what's next for this region. I know. It's so fun to be keeping up on the the trends in the industry and, and what is new out there that we can start getting some of our students and customers excited about. And Portuguese wine does seem to be one of the new hot trends. And it's not like it's a new wine growing region. It's been made, they've been making wine for quite a long time, but we're starting to just now see a little bit more emphasis placed on better quality Portuguese wines and more geared for our market so that our consumers can start to understand a little bit more about what these wines have to offer. Yeah. And I like how right up front they said, you know, when you think of Portugal, stop thinking about Port and Madeira and look at the still wines. And I think that people also have to not think about like Matus and those other inexpensive rosés and like lighter style or sweeter wines that folks were familiar with in the early 80s. Because I know from my days in retail when people either didn't, you know, you either thought about port or you thought about Matus and there was like nothing else in between. And we have all of these wonderful wines that are starting to show up in the US and on wine lists and in stores and on distributor lists that really showcase how broad Portuguese wines are. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the big producers because my understanding was when they were the big producers, well, they're still around, but there were all these farmers that were just giving up their their grapes to these big producers. And then Portugal joins the EU. The EU gives them monies and the, the growers then say, okay, I'm going to take that money from the EU. I'm going to now produce my, keep my grapes, use this money and buy some nice equipment and produce my own wine. So it right. led to these more small production wineries popping up. Right. Portugal is a great example of what happens when governments sort of stymie industry and certain areas of production. And we see this with Portugal that once they entered the EU in the 80s and then started to do more of their own developing of their industry in the 90s, that it really started to take off. And we're seeing this now on the other side of Europe with a lot of Eastern European countries that used to be communist bloc nations that had a tradition of grape growing and winemaking. It's only now that we're starting to see their industries uh, bouncing back and appearing on the international market. So I kind of feel like the two of those go hand in hand because politics and different national situations really do impact what we see as far as wine goes. And when you think of the history, I mean, going way, way back, they produce some phenomenal value wines. I mean, you can get wines $8 to $20 that are just phenomenal, small production. You figure with all they're doing and the quality they're putting in, I think it's a tremendous value in the wine world. And I always hear from people who've gone to Portugal and Spain on vacation that they come home and they just want to talk about the wines. They're like, oh my gosh, we had these wonderful wines when we were in Portugal. And they're like, where can we find them? And tourism has been a great boon for their industry. So as more people are traveling to the different countries, then we do see that there is the interest in their wines. So let's talk a little bit about the wines. Yeah. First, I want you talking about the tourists. Didn't we hear that that sometime they have more tourists than than actual population. Yeah, as far as so, the population. Yeah, Sometimes it's, it's like the country's population doubles between actual um, residents and then then tourists and visitors to their country, which is <laughs> good for them. Blowing. Yeah, 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 good for them. So like you said, Kim, let's talk about the grapes. And, and again, this is an area that they have a lot of indigenous grapes. Right. Actually, I find that makes it hard to talk about the grapes because... Well, for you, it's easy. For me, it's hard to pronounce. <laughs> That's right? a different topic. <laughs> but I mean more like these are names that nobody is familiar with. 
with. Like literally nobody knows what these grapes are. So the way that they are themselves, I think, trying to market them is less about the grape varieties and more about the regions. So we talked about that when we covered Vino Verde just recently. So I actually think that that makes more sense. It's like give a personality to the individual regions, the distinct regions, and kind of don't worry about the grape varieties. And that's a very un, I don't say un-American, but it's not an easy thing for Americans to wrap their brains around because we are so used to wine labels with grape varieties on them. And even when we have blends from California, people still want to know what's the blend? Like what, what grapes are in here? For these wines, it's not that the grape varieties are less important, but we don't have that institutional knowledge about these grape varieties to be able to make an educated decision about the wine must taste a certain way because it has grape XYZ in it. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to put these on a shelf someplace because most of the time they're blends. Right. And most of the time, like you said, Kim, they're focusing on the region. The region is right on the front and you have to know that that region grows what grapes and what's going to be in that mm-hmm. blend. Like when we discussed Vino Verde, it's not the grape, it's the region. Right. Um, so they mentioned varietals to watch. And the first was a red they called, I want to say Baga. Baga. Yep. Baga is a cool grape. Really red is. grape. And they compared it to Nebbiolo and Pinot Noir as it's they, what they said, harsh and a rustic grape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is pretty. The one, the examples that I've had of Baga have been sort of rustic. You know, it kind of has this savory element where it's like spice and herbs and not so much jammy fruit. But the tannins are pretty tight. So it's this weird combination like Nebbiolo has of being light in color and sort of light in flavor, but then having these really firm tannins that really dry your mouth out. Yeah, high tannins, high acid, which Mm -hmm. they mentioned, it makes this a great grape to use for sparkling wines. And we did just recently explore sparkling wines for Portugal, which I was very impressed Mm -hmm. for the price point as well. So what was the second, the the last two grapes they mentioned, Kim, was was white grapes, right? Yes. And I want to say Encruzado, Encruzado, how do you say it? You know what? I can do Italian. I can do Spanish. My French is okay. My Portuguese is just not there. Well, I'm just so I don't know. I think we're both spelling Incruziado, we'll say. <laughs> it's a white from the Dao region, and they make a bunch of blends from it. They can uh, describe it as a rose or a violet profile mm-hmm. for a white, which is interesting. It's, yeah, different. And also because this region is actually known more for a red wine, for red, red wine production than white wine production. So I thought it interesting that this is a, a grape to watch and a region and a style to watch. Yeah, not only that, it's a white from the region, but they said it's also seen a lot as just the single varietal wine, which most of the time you get in wine from Portugal, it's a blend of a bunch of different things right. for many different reasons. So that is an interesting point as well. And then the last white they, they mentioned was Arinto, yep. a white uh, grown in many regions, also in Vino Verde blend and another acidic with maybe an apple profile. Yep. This is another one that I think we do see a little bit of single varietal bottles of this grape variety. We see more Albarino and in Portugal, they also grow it uh, in the northern part of the country. And, and Arinto is sort of the um, partner wine, I guess you can say, to Albarino, where the, the two balance each other out between their flavors and then the, the textures as well. And this was another, they said, great for making sparkling wines. Right, because it's got really good acidity. So that's one of the reasons that it is a good blending wine and why it makes for a nice base for sparkling wine. So I know, Kim, from my distributors, the overall amount of Portuguese wines being imported into Massachusetts has greatly increased. I know 
my shelf space has greatly increased and I actually started putting them in with my California red blend section and I have a Portuguese section. So have you seen any interest expanding in Portuguese? I have. I have. um, Interest in Portuguese wines, interest in Spanish wines. Um, And when I go into different stores, I do see just like yours that those those sections are expanding. So it's it's nice to see and it's going to be exciting when we can do some education on these wines so that people can get a better idea of what they're all about and and hopefully expand their own uh, their own palates with these wines. Have you seen a decline in port and Madeira interest over, you know, more still wines now than port? I think port and Madeira really do appeal to a certain part of the population for drinkers and I, I don't see it necessarily going up or down. People who like port like port and yeah. they will continue to like port. It's a, an interesting category to get people interested in because sweet wines, high alcohol wines really aren't for everybody, but I don't really see an up or down. I try to introduce people to Madeira as often as I can because I think that there is a real, I think, historical significance to Madeira and that they are very interesting wines that not a lot of people know about. So I try to make a point of introducing these styles to people, but it's not something that too many people come up to me and be like, hey, I want to do a port tasting. They're fun to integrate into overall tastings, but I don't necessarily see an, an up or down. What about wine lists as far as Portuguese wines? I really I've... like when there are some Portuguese wines on, seems um, rare, on a wine though. list. Yeah, it, it does seem rare. rare. You see more tawny ports, vintage ports on wine lists than you do still wines, I, I find, except for those Vino Verdes. I know there, I, I do find still that there are some in white sections, especially in the summertime. Yeah, that seemed to be like the sommelier's go-to in the, recently. Well, they're so Put good. a Vino Verde <laughs> on the list. Right. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. For more information about Mark, you can visit his website at franklinliquors.com. And for more information about myself, you can visit vinitaswineworks.com. And for back shows of The Wonderful World of Wine, please search on iTunes. An article that we ran across from Beverage Daily talks about what we always try to bring up on our show, which is trends in the wine market and what is kind of going to be the next big thing. So that's exactly what this was all about, was what is is the next big thing in the wine market. Yeah, and they were talking about what consumers are concerned about. And one of them, well, this article focused on, they want, they're concerned about what they're drinking. Right. And it had to deal with organic, biodynamic, what are they seeking? Right. And what questions are consumers asking? And this really was sort of jumping off of how people are approaching food these days and, and taking that to the next level and applying it to your wine. So we really have seen a, a big increase in the number of organic labels that are available to the consumers. And they are saying that this is a trend that will continue. Yeah. And they were saying that the organic term is the most recognized consumer alternative wine term. Mm, I thought that was very interesting. I think that's nice, but I think it's misunderstood too, is what organic is. And then they said globally, organic is 2.8% of sales and the EU makes up 90% of organic wine growing, which we touched on in the past and we were kind of disappointed that the U.S. is so low and EU is above us, but they're also consuming more than we are as well. And I've noticed this recently with tastings that we've done that organically labeled wines, I don't want to say that they're an afterthought,
lot, but it's not the very first thing that is mentioned. You know, we talk about the wines first, we taste the wines first, and then it's almost like an afterthought, like, oh, and by the way, these are all produced organically. It's like, you know, it's different than for, I think, American organic wines, which the very first thing they talk about is these are organic. So maybe some of that is what is holding back American producers of wine from being organic or be the slowing down the growth of that. So the EU is basically saying it's good. And oh, by the way, yeah, we you should know we're doing organics, right? right? So it's almost like they're focusing on the quality of the wine first and then the organic production second. Whereas here, I think it's the opposite. It's like, all right, we're going to grow organically. And if the wines are just kind of meh, well, so what? They're still organic. And they were saying the last seven years, organic wine sales have grown 20% right. globally. So, it's so that's a, huge. There's a lot of growth and there's a lot of potential there too. And I think it is important to recognize what they said about or the word organic and the concept of organic is readily recognized by most consumers these days. So even if the actual uh, rules within what qualifies and what counts as something being organic maybe isn't completely understood by consumers, they still understand what that is supposed to be meaning on a label. Let's talk, Kim, about what they said were the top three growth areas globally. Um, Number one was organic. Number two was sustainable. And number three was fair trade wines. And I thought this was interesting because I haven't seen too much emphasis put on the fair trade label when it comes to beverages. You see it in, well, except for coffee. You see it in coffee. You see it in chocolate. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen a fair trade label on a bottle of wine. Yeah, they're saying this is big in the UK. And fair trade is a, an international organization which protects workers. And years ago, it was big for South Africa, for workers in South mm-hmm. Africa. And they're, I think they were saying 40 or 42 organizations in the world, mostly uh, South Africa, Chile. And we actually had, we had met with a distributor who visited, was it Argentina or Chile? Argentina. Argentina. He was looking at bringing in a wine. And when he saw the workers in the in the field, they were children. So he felt very unfair labor practices. So, and that, I mean, that relates to fair trade. Right. It's like, okay, if you're paying attention to the environment with doing organic production, environmentally friendly farming, the fair trade brings in the human element. Where are you you taking care of your workers? Are you providing a living wage? Are you making sure that yes, you're not having children picking grapes in in the in the vineyards and really taking this additional step to make sure that your workers are well cared for? So that is a trend people are looking for globally. I actually did create within my organic section a fair trade section did years really? ago, oh. but it, mostly it's just South African. You're wines. ahead of the trend, and they do have a certification seal. Uh-huh. So if you do see it, that's what it is, and uh, we'll keep watching all these trends. Right. And those seals are important because in order to be considered organic, there has to be certification agencies that, you know, put their stamp on it and be like, yes, this is organically produced. Fair trade has that same thing. With this middle category with sustainable or environmentally friendly, there isn't that secondary oversight. And it seems like, you know, a lot of consumers want to do the right thing. You know, consumers want to support brands that are environmentally doing the right thing, but it's very hard for a consumer to know. You know, a lot of producers can just, you know, know, slap a, we're sustainably produced on their label, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So as we continue to follow these trends, we'll see if, if there is movement in that direction as well. Thank you for exploring wine with us today. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. If you'd like to find out more information about our show, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine. And if you'd like to follow our older podcasts, please go to iTunes or SoundCloud and search The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Cheers.